0: the Super 70
1: Sports podcast Oh, hell
0: yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports podcast. I am of course Ricky Cobb and as I tape today, summer is coming to a close quickly. My kids are back in school, the NFL kicked off the regular season this weekend, and I can't help but reflect on how much longer summer seemed to last when I was a kid. It seems as though it flies by now, but it felt like some of those summer days when riding bikes with my friends or playing wiffle ball that an afternoon was almost a lifetime, or so that's the way that my memory plays tricks on me. You know, I've been thinking a lot about my childhood lately since reading my guest today's wonderful new book about growing up in the 1970s. The pleasure and sometimes the heartache and the pain of that experience as well. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, longtime Sports Illustrated columnist, the 2005 National Sports Writer of the Year, and the author of the new book, Stingray Afternoons, a memoir. Steve Russian. Steve, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Ricky. I feel like if this were a true 70s podcast, you would be waiting to pick up until caller number nine (laughs) and gets tickets to... uh... (laughs) Spring scene at the St. Paul Civic
0: Center. <laughs> well, I've got to ask you. So much in this book is instantly relatable to me, and instantly relatable to the audience that I have at Super 70 Sports. I'm certain. In fact, I initially became aware of this book through people who were reaching out to me and saying, "Have you seen this book? You need to read this book. You need to have Steve Russian on the podcast." What inspired you to write this memoir?
1: Well, you know, it started out the way I think of doing what I think a lot of people have done. I just looked up the newspaper from the day that I was born to the place that I was born I, I was born in Elmhurst, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Where I, you know where I
0: am sitting right now.
1: I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And and I looked up the Chicago Tribune from September 22nd, 1966, and I thought, I had no intention of writing about it, or it was just an idle thing to do on a winter day, and uh, I saw geez, a six-pack of old-style is 79 cents. That seems cheap even for old-style. <laughs> um, you know, the third episode, but really kind of the first episode of Star Trek was on TV, on NBC, about 45 minutes after I was born at 6.45 in the evening, and uh, uh, you know, I wonder if my mom's if that was the first thing she saw after I was born, it would explain the, the Spock haircuts I had gotten for a number of years. And <laughs> I just kind of looked at the next day's paper, and believe it or not, people don't believe this, the White Sox and Yankees drew 413 people to Yankee Stadium that night. The night before, the Cubs and Reds drew 525 people to uh, Wrigley. The pennant races were over, there were no baseball playoffs, and people just stopped going to games. So it was a very different time and it kind of got me interested in what those first few years of life before I was conscious of them were like. And that just led to looking at the next day's paper and the next day's paper and the next day's paper. And before I knew it, I was kind of writing memoir of growing up in the 70s because I was three when the 70s started. I was 13 when they ended. So it was kind of that sweet spot from um, you know the onset of memory to the onset of puberty.
0: So for people that may be wondering the title of the book, tell us where that came from. What's the importance of the Stingray?
1: Well, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, I grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota, suburban Minneapolis for the Twins and Vikings and North Stars and Globetrotters and Led Zeppelin all played there at various points. And and uh, the sort of holy grail of my childhood was the Schwinn Stingray bike. You know, I loved I loved the, the flamboyant lime colors, the, the purple cough medicine colors that they had. And you know the the sissy bars and the banana seats and all that, and it, that was because every kid, as you know, wanted to be evil Knievel at some point in their childhood and jump over garbage cans laid on their side or over cordwood or whatever it was. And um, there was this longing for all kinds of those objects when I was a kid. You know, Later, it became a Panasonic boombox that Earthman and Fire endorsed. Um, it was just different things at various times. But for most of that childhood sweet spot that I described, it was a Schwinn Stingray. And my dad, spoiler alert, always knew a guy who could get a deal on something. And he knew a guy who was a CCM bike dealer. Now, you thought CCM just made hockey sticks and skates, and so did I. But he got me a CCM Mustang that was very much like the schwinn stingray and uh you know i was a, uh, one of five kids and i was the wuss of my four brothers and i never really wanted to jump anything anyway but uh, that that thing was just a badass looking vehicle parked in a driveway you know you drive by your friend's house you'd see four or five stingrays or any other muscle bike parked in the driveway and you knew that you, your friends were there they were having fun maybe you, you weren't invited to that thing but it was like uh it was like the motorcycles in a parking lot of a biker bar. You know, you wanted to be <laughs> older as a kid. You wanted those. You wanted the muscle bike. You wanted the candy cigarettes. You wanted the, you know, the the fake tattoo, and it was just this longing to be older. And uh, in Minnesota, anyway, I don't know if it was true of other places. You had to get a bicycle license, and you had to take this reflective sticker and put it on your bike, along with the STP and Valvoline stickers. And it was the first licensed anything that I got. You know, it wasn't before a driver's license or a fishing license or anything like that. You were now a licensed bike rider and you could lean your bike, your stingray up against the Penn Lake Library when you went into, uh, to, you know, the children's reading hour or whatever and you felt like you were, you were a Hell's Angel.
0: (laughs) Well, we were unlicensed in Kentucky. I didn't even know that was a
1: thing. Well, I mean, you were, you were driving without a license, to operating a, a muscle bike at age seven without a license. Yeah, was a thing in Minnesota. But Minnesota had a lot of weird things that I only found out later other people didn't have. When you gave somebody a ride on your bike, it was called giving them a buck. Um, we had something called box hockey. We had 900 variations of hockey that we played that weren't played at, in, in other places. And uh, But, you know, that was the cool thing about that era before the Internet was there were still these pockets of regional things that you know they didn't so we would you know you know cincinnati we would take mm-hmm. a family trip to cincinnati every other summer because that's where my mom's family was from and we'd go visit our cousins and oh man they you know we have Pickwick and and bloomington they have king quick the convenience store in, in cincinnati and uh, gosh they put they put uh, spaghetti in their chili and i mean you know everything was just like fascinating that was the the Easternmost border of my world was Cincinnati, and uh, and then you know you'd see the Brady bunch, and they'd get in a. Uh, when Mike got the, uh, was commissioned to design something at 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 um, at uh, uh, Kings uh, Kings Island. Uh, yeah, the amusement yeah, park. Yeah, Kings Island, right? Yeah, yeah, Kings Island, yeah, yeah, with the racer uh, roller coasters. Man, you know we've been there. We, you could you could see see this place on TV where. I've been there, and the Brady's have been there. So, you know, it was it was uh, it was just a different uh, a time when when you know we had bike licenses in Minnesota. You didn't have bike licenses in Kentucky. Um, you know, it was I was fascinated by those faraway lands. Um, you know, three or four states over from where I lived.
0: And there's there's all these little differences, but at the same time, I feel like reading the book while there are some things that you think okay well that's a little bit different i can't relate to the hockey games and things that you played obviously but so much of it sort of has this universal vibe i i'm thinking about the candy cigarettes and you talk about the die cast cap guns in those days it's it's funny i had nick bakai uh on the show a few episodes ago and we started talking about how safety has become such a uh, high priority, at least compared right. to the, to the seventies for children. And, uh, we were just kind of out there pretending that we were smoking lung darts and using, uh, probably irresponsibly realistic firearms. Uh, of course. and somehow we, somehow we made it. You talk about the, uh, the family, uh, Ford LTD that your, right. that your dad ha- had a, a tortured relationship with. And we were in the back of these cars. You know, God only knows how we, we weren't thrown to our death.
1: I mean, the seatbelts were, were, seat were a safety hazard because they'd be flying around with the buckles swinging around. So we would stuff those those buckles into the crevice, you know, behind your butt.
0: Get them out of the way. Swing
1: around and hit somebody. Right. Absolutely. You know, I was a safety device when I was, you know, two or three. When we moved from Chicago to Minneapolis... When I was three, we stopped halfway in between the Wisconsin Dells on July twentieth, nineteen sixty-nine, so my parents could watch the moon landing as they tucked us in the bed. And then we continued to ride on. My mom was five months pregnant with my sister, and I would have been sitting on her lap in the shotgun seat, acting as the airbag that would protect mom and my unborn sister in the event of an accident. I mean, it it was—you know—some stuff really. In hindsight, was crazy, but uh, but so much of it, and and I've I've talked about this a couple of times has come up a couple of times since the book came out I attribute a lot of this to um, this kind of helicopter parenting and fear of you know injury and you know put a helmet on for everything to uh, to the rise not long after the 70s of 24-hour cable news and you know if something happened some god forbid horrible thing happened to a kid in in uh, El Paso we didn't hear about it on the local news in Minnesota and now, whenever ever anything like that happens anywhere, you hear about it, you might even get an alert on your phone, and it, it gives people the sense that the stuff is happening more frequently, it's happening everywhere, and it's happening all the time. And And I don't think it's happening any more frequently than it did when we were kids. It's just that we know about it now. We didn't know about it then. You didn't see grainy security footage of somebody being taken out of a Walmart or something when we were kids, unless it happened in your area. And that was so infrequent that you knew every instance of something, you know, some tragedy that had had happened in your neighborhood. Um, So, yeah, I mean, some things, as much as I love the 70s, some things, no question, are better. I mean, people were heaving, you know, their bags of McDonald's trash out on the interstate and, and, uh, you know, leaded gasoline. Probably a good thing we got rid of that. All that stuff. But you're absolutely right in, um, you know, this kind of paranoia about safety and you talk about the cap guns what about the plastic machine guns that looked exactly like uh, ak-47s and uh you know you pull the trigger and, and they would just <laughs> rattle off uh, a realistic sounding machine gun fire and you'd be laughed at if you you know walked up to somebody in my subdivision and pulled that thing because everybody knew that the neighborhood was rife with toy plastic guns without the orange tip at the end
0: it's amazing. I, I, I tweeted uh, uh, a picture of one of those types of guns out once, and I, I jokingly said, "You know, this is from the. Uh, I think the officer will eventually be acquitted uh, of shooting you, collection." <laughs> uh, but it's just looking back on it, you know, from from our twenty seventeen mentality, it, 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 all you can think is, is this is a, this is a nightmare scenario waiting to happen. But it just never Absolutely. occurred. It never occurred to anybody in the seventies.
1: And I would hope that that's part of evolving, you know, as human beings. You know, some days in 2017, it 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 seems like we've gone backwards. But I would hope that, yeah, you know, um, but it's it's that thing we didn't know any different, and um, you know, uh, we thought that, in my case, five channels was, I mean, it was it was a buffet of uh, unearthly delights on television. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, we didn't know we didn't know that. That because it was on network TV, it was great. You know, um, think of all—think of this golden age of TV that we have now. Um, if it was on NBC or CBS at eight o'clock on Thursday night, it was by definition something you were going to watch. I mean, what choice did you have? First of all, but also, it was—you uh, know—if you missed it, you weren't going to see it again. You weren't going to—you weren't going to DVR it. And uh, so on Saturday night, if you wanted to see Mary Tyler Moore driving past your hometown and then something up a Mustang in a Fran Tucker, Jersey, you talk about the holy trinity of, you know, my 10 year old erotica, Mary Tyler Moore in a Fran Tucker, in Jersey, something up a Mustang, a, a real life matchbox car, boy, the, the confusion that was swirling in me. And, uh, that still sounds well, pretty you know, good.
0: I'm not even. Exactly. I, I didn't even grow up in Minnesota.
1: Exactly. So then um, uh, you had to be there, you know, on Saturday night um, to watch that or Carol Burnett or whatever the hell it was you were watching, and uh, and. You know, even in this golden age of TV for the book, I mean, I, I got to pretend that I was spending the day working when I'm watching season one of Charlie's Angels on DVD. <laughs> it's so I had to throw myself. Yeah, I could actually throw myself on the DVD as my wife and kids come in, because, like it's a, like it's a live grenade. Because here, <laughs> here's you know, here are the angels being. Uh, expected for being deloused as they're as they're being processed into a women's prison in the in the uh, third episode or whatever it was of Charlie's Angels. And uh, I mean, even now at age fifty, I'm looking back, thinking that that show debuted on my tenth birthday, and I remember my brothers and I, my two older brothers and I, watching that in, in in the basement and you know listening for any creaking stairs if my dad was coming down to get a special export out of the fridge. Um, you know we had to, somebody had to leap up and, and turn it off or turn the channel because um, I mean that was that was uh, edgy stuff
0: this is pre HBO even
1: absolutely we were the last to get you know cable my dad was in in uh, magnetic tape videotape business we were still the last to get a VCR and cable on it. but once we did get cable and had those three uh, three rows of, of buttons you know um, We've, one of my brothers, we figured out you could toggle between the channels real quickly and catch just like a, a glimpse of nudity pixelated <laughs> in snow on, on one of the premium cable channels that we didn't have.
0: See, that's that, that's just good old-fashioned uh, young American ingenuity at work right there.
1: Uh, absolutely. And again, this was, you know, in this um, pre-Internet age where, where, you know, you had to have a, a roadmap to the... Ten-year-old Playboy in the marshland across from our house. That somehow everybody knew or was handed down generationally, um, and then at some point you were led back to that spot in the marsh to to see a you know a uh, horrified uh, naked woman for ten seconds before somebody else ripped it out of your hands, and uh, and then they were initiated into this thing. And it's interesting too how in that pre of age you you mentioned earlier we all shared some of the same things how some of these things became national you know the rumors of whether it was Fonzie's death or you know, there's spider eggs in in and uh in a bubble yum whatever those rumors were you know my cousins in Cincinnati knew about them uh, um you know our old neighbors in Chicago knew about them and and, and they weren't in the newspaper they weren't on on uh, the CBS Evening News. So I don't know how everybody found out about these things or shared these experiences at the same time, but they did.
0: In much in that vein, I kind of think the same thing about a lot of other stuff that's in the book. the The pleasures of holding the calculator upside down and m- making words, particularly five three one eight zero zero eight, which yeah. which a lot of people I know remember that, but. But it's like everybody knew that. We knew that uh, at home in Kentucky. You knew that. I'm sure people knew that everywhere.
1: How, how did we know it? It wasn't like it was. It wasn't in Mad Magazine. It wasn't in Dynamite. It wasn't uh, on. You know. Uh, how did we know it? I, I, I wish I knew that. You had, uh, I assume you had the rumor that um, in the background of Love Roller Coaster by the Ohio Players. that the scream was actually a woman being murdered in the alleyway behind the recording studio. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes,
0: I remember that well.
1: I mean, everybody th- that was that was uh assumed to be a, a fact, you know. I mean, I just took it for granted and and it, it never occurred to me that, you know, why would they record in a studio where you could hear screaming to the vent A and B? Why would they play this on the radio constantly? This woman being murdered in the background, it seems insensitive to say... <laughs>
0: the Ohio uh, players were some hardcore individuals, you know, look out. Exactly.
1: <laughs> no. so, I know. Mean, so, it's, it's, uh, it's it fascinates me how these things became uh, national rumors among 12-year-olds without any kind of uh, national uh, communication system.
0: Yeah, Pop Rocks and, and uh, the Coke or Mountain Dew, or whatever the very, you know, there might be a slight variation from <laughs> town to town, but it was always In Pop way, Rocks and some type of...
1: Everybody knew somebody <laughs> who's Buddy's cousin it happened to.
0: Exactly. I have to ask, you know, you mentioned that your years, 3 to 13, kind of that special time period, is as you mentioned it, from like the dawn of memory to, to puberty, coincided just perfectly with the 70s for you. And so... As you began this process of uh, of writing a memoir, was was this something that was going to be about your childhood? Did you realize at the same time that it was really also about the reader's childhood, uh, in a sense? Or was the book about the 70s? Or was it some combination of all those well, things?
1: It was a combination of those things, but I realized if the book was going to be any good, if it was going to resonate with anybody, it had to be about childhood generally. It had to be... Um, a book about growing up, but it, uh, we all grew up in different circumstances, but we all shared many of the same experiences. And um, so, two things that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to, I didn't want the 70s to be the 70s, you know, the, the, the cliche 70s of you know just bell bottoms and shag rugs and uh, and Bisco. You know that that they were real people living in the 70s. <laughs> you know, exper you know going through work. Uh, traumas and and um, you know life and as a kid this is the other thing I didn't want to do I didn't want it just to be all about fun and the great times and uh, the biggest memories I had it had to be about you know include at least the fears and anxieties and and um, you know the difficult part of, of being a kid I've got four kids of my own I see them come home from school something has happened they're you know, they burst into tears. It's hard. It's often hard to be a kid. And I remember watching uh, Bob McAllister's Wonderama on Sunday mornings. And that team saw kids are people, too. Although although we're, we're small and not full-grown, we've got problems of our own. But up to that, kids are people, too. And and, and that is, that's true. You know, I mean, my kids, uh, they don't like going to the basement by themselves. They don't like uh, – I didn't as a kid. I remember my son lying in bed uh, in the summertime. Uh, counting his mosquito bites, he's Dad, "Dad, I've got 27 mosquito bites." And it's like he's inventorying all of his bug bites, like he's rereading the day in braille. And I remember <laughs> doing that myself. And so, and, and the other thing is, you know, there's so there's a lot of good times, there's a lot of scary times, there's a lot of just pure boredom of just summer days that go on forever. And those are all in, in our mind's eye, just great memories of these endless summers. But I remember distinctly being just bored out of my mind and not being allowed to stay in the house and watch T V my mom would kick me out of the house and you know, we kind of romanticize now that, that you're a, a don't come home until dinner. But if there was nothing to do, then you run out in the yard with a with a baseball and you'd throw pop ups to yourself or you'd I'd had a soccer ball you know, okay, I've got 20, I kept it up 23 times, I'm going to try it. Now, Oh, now I've done it 79 times, now I've done it 117 times, pretty soon, you know, two hours has gone down the drain, but, um, so I wanted all of that to be in the book, and, uh, and, you know, that's the only way to give a fully rounded picture of, of a real childhood, and I had a great childhood, you know, I grew up in and the suburb of minneapolis where there was all kinds of stuff going on i thought it was the center of the world um you know you could see you you know if you went to the lincoln dell to get a sandwich you might see rod Carew there what could be better but um but you know it, it, it you still had your anxieties you still had your problems and um you know that's what part of childhood is being about
0: what was the game called was it 99 bumps
1: 99 bump my so my oldest brother uh who was uh, fearsome you know he had the the, the uh, bench press record at lincoln high school even until it closed he was a fearsome left-handed uh, pitcher in baseball he went to ended up going to providence college on a hockey scholarship and played for Amarillo there and uh, they went to the frozen four he was a, he was a tough guy everybody was afraid of him in, in bloomington and uh just for laughs, he would give my brother and me the 99 bump where he'd kneel on your biceps, and I use the term biceps loosely, you know, <laughs> kneel on my spaghetti noodle arms and and uh, just raise the knuckle of his, of his middle finger and just give you 99 shots of the sternum, usually losing count, you know, about three-quarters of the way through and then starting over again from zero. Sometimes just to liven things up, he'd let a rope of drool Hang down, you know, towards your face, oh, no. and try to retract it as, as uh, at the last second. Sometimes he was able to, and sometimes he wasn't able to. But of course, you know, there was no there was no fighting back uh, you could try, but it was it was pointless. And um, so, yeah, but there were a million of those, you know, teenage tortures uh, or, or preteen tortures. Uh, you know, the Dutch rub, the um, purple nurple, the swirly. We call it a sudsy um and again another regional variation but uh, there was a constant fear of when i was first going off to school at the catholic k-8 that i went to that my brothers told me that i was going to get a swirly or a sudsy in the boys bathroom that was an initiation right and there was no way of getting around it but somebody was going to dunk my head in the toilet and flush the toilet it never actually happened but uh here i am 45 years later still talking about it so it definitely left an impression
0: <laughs> you had your head on a swivel uh anyway yes, exactly. that, that, the dutch rub you know uh, oddly enough it sounds like something that you would have to pay good money for but turns yeah. out not a good thing <laughs> exactly
1: right. no. No, this was one that it definitely was not a good thing and uh, and interesting the dutch rub indian burn there are all these sort of ethnic slurs concealed in these uh not only these little tortures, you know the the noogies and stuff like that, but 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 in all of society, we talk about ways society has changed. You know, I remember, um, you know, Polish jokes and and uh, television. I mean, my God, it was you know one um, like ethnic stereotype after another, and it, it just it, it's uh, so when we you know when looking back on this stuff, it, it, as you mentioned from the perspective of 2017, it really is incredible how much. Uh, Things have changed so much of it for the better, obviously. Um, but so much of that stuff was just embedded in in society when I was a kid, and not knowing any different.
0: So many of the things I could relate to as I went through the book, and obviously the book is specifically about your childhood and your family, and as. I think some reviewers have noted by the time that you get through the book, you really do feel like you kind of know your mom and your dad and and your siblings uh, in a very affectionate uh, kind of way. At the same time, there are lots of things in the book that, to one degree or another, are going to be applicable to the reader's life. And I've just jotted down a few that struck me as I, as I read the book. And one was, uh, you were talking about the knockoff tennis shoes that you would get at Sears. I think it was like the, uh, the fourth stripe sort of faux Adidas was one yeah, the one example had
1: four stripes yeah my mom tried to persuade us that one stripe was one better like we were in the military you know <laughs> what I mean? like you got an extra stripe but every kid knew exactly you know four stripes was bad two stripes was bad three stripes Adidas was the deal
0: we all knew that we knew that at my school and i remember when i was uh, a youngster and this would be i was born in 71 i'm a little bit younger than you but this would probably be like the early 80s I remember that it was a big thing. If you did not wear one of the basically peer approved brands of sneaker, they called them Buddies. So it was, Converse was acceptable, Nike was acceptable, Adidas, Pony at the time. And unless, maybe I'm forgetting one somewhere, but if you weren't uh, squarely in one of those camps, they just called whatever you had, regardless of what it was actually named, they were called Buddies. (laughs) And oh, you wear buddies. And my mother, my I don't remember this, but my mother tells the story of me coming home one day and saying, "Mom, I have to have this is a crisis. I need another pair of tennis shoes because I'm wearing buddies."
1: I went to a Catholic school where we had to wear navy pants and a light blue shirt, and so shoes were the main way of you know distinguishing yourself, or expressing yourself, or conforming, or fitting in, or. Or deliberately not fitting in, um, but even with the pants, you know, navy blue pants could have been anything. They could. Have, there were these sort of tweed twill things that some guys wore that you absolutely did not want to be wearing. Uh, at the high end, if you had uh, navy blue Levi's cords, I mean, you were you were a god. Um, and even various variations in the shirt, uh, people could, you know, the, the little tag of fabric. In the back of the shirt, that's like between the shoulder blades. Sometimes people would call a Fruit Loop, and and you know, didn't know what it meant or or why it was bad or, or anything like that. You just knew that. Um, gosh, I guess I don't want to have this on my shirt. Yet. I remember and, Fruit Loops. And, now that you yeah, mentioned, there were so many. There were so many. Um, yeah, there was so much childhood cruelty like that, but there were so many uh, uh, just ways you could be ridiculed. From the moment you got on the school bus in the morning until the moment you got off. And we had a kid, as mentioned in the book, on our school bus route, who lived at 10101 France Avenue. And they would get on, and everybody would go, 10101. I'm sure this kid wanted to move. It's not his fault that he lived at 10101. And nor was there anything wrong with living at 10101. But somebody said it on the bus one day, and then it became a thing, and, and. That had to have been a miserable bus ride every day for that kid. But, uh, God, that was – it it probably still goes on today. It's probably not unique to uh, the 70s, but that's when I grew up, and that's what I remember.
0: Was it Gary Fritz in the book who became Harry Pitts?
1: Yeah, yeah. We had so many many of those um, uh, names that that sounded vaguely like something else. And I was Russian, so uh, I get on the bus, and my three brothers – uh, later my my little sister and my little brother as well, and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. I had no idea what that meant. It turns out there was a movie in 1966 or something called The Russians Are Coming, that whoever the oldest kid, old enough to remember that, would say that, you know, some eighth grader, and then it just got passed on for years. Hey, Russian, why are you Russian? Why are you Russian to get somewhere? Oh. No, I'm actually just, just stepping onto the bus, you know. So. <laughs> I,
0: was, I was corn on the cob. I heard corn on the cob so many times that it was just like yeah, yeah, yeah. That everybody thought that they were the first person who'd ever thought of it. You know,
1: every every kid, there were, could, his name could be weaponized in some way, or his shoes, or his haircut, or his glasses, and 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 really was. And and on the flip side of that, you know, kind of if you didn't have a nickname if you weren't being singled out for ridicule in some way, you know, you kind of had to. You really weren't part of the of the of the scene. You were just, you know, the kids that I remember all had nicknames.
0: And if all else failed, just make a kid flinch and then just punch him.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and, and I, I, you know, my fear started, and, I, and as I say, I had all kinds of fears uh, as a kid, but my fear started, you know, I mean, the, the anxiety of getting on the bus and I had four siblings, um, but the anxiety of getting on the bus and finding a place to sit, you know, you know, I, I it, it I had to find a place that, that, you know, where there were, I didn't have to ask anybody to move over. And, uh, it couldn't have been next to a girl. And it couldn't have been too far in the back of the bus because that's where the older kids sat. It couldn't be too, far, too close to the front of the bus because that's where the baby sat and it was close to the bus driver was cranking Led Zeppelin on his handheld radio. And, um, and, and so, so that was never going to, that was never going to even begin well, much less end well. But then if you got a window seat and, you know, you could, you could, uh, put your, at least in Minnesota where the windows were frozen over, you could put your, they taught me how to put the side of my hand, make a fist and put the side of your fist onto the window and make a, make a footprint, a little mini footprint. And then you take your fingertip and you make, put the toes in. And, um, and I still do that now on a, on a frozen window Or I'll do it in the steam on the glass of the shower. And so you learn these skills, you know, 20 minutes each way in the bus that, um, that, that, Never went away. You talk about turning the calculator upside down. You would put, you know, and I'm sure you did too. I'm sure every kid did. You put a thin layer of Elmer's glue across your palm and then <laughs> peel it off. Hold yep. it up to the light and see your see your uh, see your palm print through that. Um, it, it, you'd do the same thing more or less when you would have a bad sunburn, and you could peel off the peel off your skin and hold it up to the light and it looked just like your palm print did when you peeled off the Elmer's glue, and you did have a bad sunburn. Of course because you didn't put on any sunscreen you weren't wearing a shirt you were probably putting on some kind of cristo oil to get a more uh right. audacious tan and uh, and and now i go to the dermatologist twice a year um, because she wants to monitor everything that's going on with my skin and you know where are long sleeves in the pool uh, as you usually thing i've been wearing long sleeves in a swimming pool. I'll just want to swim if that's what I have to do. But, but <laughs> I, I, you know, I said, No, I, 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 I get think, it. Well, I figure out how much of this is just a placebo and how much is the true answer to what I can do is go back in time to when I was a kid and put on sunscreen because that's not going to happen. You know, it wasn't even a consideration. Um, you know, we would ride to the beach, Bush Lake Beach in Bloomington in the back of Mr. Wagner's green... VW uh, bug, and um, you know I don't ever remember. I remember the smell of you know scented suntan oil, but sunscreen wasn't a, wasn't a phrase that ever entered my lexicon when I was a kid.
0: Steve, I took my kids to the pool probably I don't know a month ago, and I did not did not get one of my uh, girls on the cheeks apparently well enough with the with the suntan lotion and, right. and so she's you know her cheeks are red afterwards and i feel I, you know i'm I feel so guilty i'm ready to just go throw myself on the train tracks for you know this complete abject failure of uh, being a parent and my wife says to me she's like did you wear sunscreen ever when you were a kid and i'm like well no and she said i didn't either one little sunburn you know is not going to is not going to kill her just make sure you do a better job next time
1: i say the same thing to my wife when you know oh you didn't you didn't get you didn't get her daughter i say i'm standing here shaking a spray can of uh, sunscreen that's blowing in the opposite (laughs) direction usually into my face as i'm doing it this is all just kind of you know uh, 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 magical thinking that this is going to protect them on the other hand it, it, it probably is better now that we know about this stuff you know um there's a thing in the book about uh illinois had some bounty on on cans you know collecting cans of deposits on cans and and uh and you know these empty six pack of beer for 79 cents that i mentioned these cans were essentially as valuable empty as they were uh full in some cases they were more valuable empty than they were full of beer but um but, you know, people would uh, – there were so many of them to collect. We collected beer cans as kids. people would just throw them in the woods or people would uh, – uh, I remember my dad, we were walking across in the park across from our house, and he pulled some out of his pocket, and some wrappers or papers went flying out of his pocket. And I went back and picked them up because it was only when, you know, that those litter campaigns started that as a self-righteous little kid, hey, dad, dad you've got to pick up this paper that was, that was um, you know, blew away. And somebody mentioned I didn't see – uh, Mad Men, but that there was a scene in Mad Men where they had a picnic and and at the end of it they just shook the blanket, <laughs> all of the wrappers and, and, and you know cans or whatever just left it there.
0: It was. That, I mean uh, that is one yeah, thing yeah. the world has improved in terms of. I don't think we litter as much as we did then.
1: Right, that's better, and the sunscreen is better. There's no question.
0: You talk in the book about a lot of the games that that you would play, and that's one of the things that I think. All of us of a certain age can, can relate to, and well, of any age for that matter. But when I was a kid, it was swiffle ball, Nerf football, uh, games that we made up, throwing a rubber ball against the side of a house. A buddy of mine and I, we would, we had a game where we would try to rob home runs. Yeah, we try to throw the ball just perfectly up against the fence so that you'd have a fighting chance to jump up and make a great catch. You talk in the book about pitcher's hand and ghost runners, and that's another one of those things that I think that we can all relate to. Pitcher's hand. How did everybody know uh, what pitcher's hand was, and yet we did? I know. There
1: was no manual. There was no, uh, you know, national kid Sandlot baseball rule book, and yet we all kind of Knew what to do, and you could play a game. If you you never had 18 kids to play to play, play baseball, obviously sometimes you had three, sometimes you had seven, sometimes you had five. You could almost play a full game with any number of kids, no matter how few. My buddy Kevin and I we played a two-person game called garage door baseball and um, you know it was you know, like a suburban variation of stick ball where you throw a tennis ball against his he'd be batting or I'd be batting against his garage door to uh, hit the garage door it was a strike as long as it was vaguely in the strike zone we had in the garage door but if you got a hit if you hit in the street it's a single if you hit it over the street into the Johnson's yard it was a it was a double off the Johnson's house was a triple and onto the Johnson's roof was a home run and the nutty thing about it was and I didn't really think about this until I was writing the book, and I confirmed it with with Kevin. The Johnsons never once, never once, complained that we were rocketing tennis balls off <laughs> there and onto their house. I mean, certainly there were some some neighbors who would have complained, and there was we had the neighbor who you know kept the ball if it went in their yard and all that. But you know, Harmon Kilbrews uh, always said that his his uh, his mother complained to his father about uh, you know they were tearing up the grass. Harmon and brother were tearing up the grass and. and apartment's dad so we can either raise grass or raise boys we're not going to do both and i felt you know really lucky that i had parents and and kevin sundin had parents who uh you know there are two types those who let you use their garage door as a backstop and those who don't and you know our garage doors respective garage doors were just pockmarked with uh, with ball marks and Dents and stuff because it was a it was a a hockey goal. It was a backstop for baseball. It was just a a, a backdrop for all of our games. You know, uh, we filled we filled entire summer days with that stuff.
0: Fortunately for me, that was the same philosophy that was taken at my house. So uh, thanks to all the moms and dads out there that didn't mind uh, some uh, places of dirt worn in the lawn and a few pock marks on the garage door.
1: Yeah, very rarely. I mean, my kids, they burst into my bedroom like a saloon doors at any time of day or night now without knocking or anything. I very rarely went into my parents' room. Um, But when I did, they they had a window that overlooked the roof of our garage. So their bedroom was above and to the side of our garage. And I remember looking out that window. This isn't even the book. This is kind of a recovered memory right now. And seeing, oh, my gosh, there's the Frisbee. There's four tennis balls. There's a wiffle ball and a, and a plastic street hockey puck in, in the gutter. And uh, every once in a while, you know, we would get out the ladder or my dad would go out on the roof to the bedroom or whatever, and we'd collect all that stuff. And uh, I remember uh, a colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated Franz Lids writing something about uh, the inventor of or the popularizer of the of the Frisbee. Uh, I don't know if it was from Whammo or what, but uh, an obituary of the guy who said, who had said that when he died, he didn't want to be buried. He wanted to be cremated and have his ashes thrown on his neighbor's roof. And um, <laughs> that was that was you know, that was our neighborhood. I mean, if you looked out on everybody's roof, even if they didn't have kids, they had kid, neighbor kids. Something I guarantee you, that there were multiple sporting goods um, on everybody's roof.
0: The Sears Wish Book. I cannot. Explain adequately, probably, unless you are of a particular age, how significant this particular catalog was to the childhood of children of the of the 1970s and on into the 1980s. I'm sure. What are your favorite Sears Wish Book memories?
1: Well, I can try to explain it because I've had to explain it to my own kids before there was a Toys R Us, before there was uh, an internet. Before there was, uh, you know, before you had ever been to New York and gone to see F.A.O. Schwartz, or before you saw F.A.O. Schwartz in the movie Big, there was the world's largest collection of kids, toys, and other things that kids would be interested in, and it was a 650-page monster called the Sears Catalog that would land on your parents' doorstep. in As early as September, I was startled to find out, writing the book, because my mom never busted it out until after Thanksgiving. And when she did, you know, my oldest brother would immediately grab it and he'd have it for at least a, a solid day. And then my next brother would get it. And by the time I got it, it was dog-eared and there were things circled in it. And it was it was just this this catalog of everything you could possibly want and many things you had no idea you wanted. Um, and, and it almost every single circumstance you had no chance of getting them and you really had to pick your spots asking for them i mean you knew not to do anything crazy and ask for the bumper pool table or the or you know the the, the bicycle but gosh maybe i can get this this um, quiz whiz or or you know the small handheld electronic mattel football or something and it had everything and if it didn't have it it may as well not have existed because Everybody was was uh, you know making their Christmas list based on what was in their Sears catalog, and then of course, once you've been over all the toys a thousand times, you could page to the. I mean, they had things like, as you know, the the NFL licensed pajamas, and the NFL licensed
0: the jerseys. The only
1: place you could get a, you jerseys, and and uh, some people were bummed out that the, the team name was stripped across the front above the numbers. But um, oh, and the NFL. A fake, like Letterman's jackets, with the matching cap. My cousins in Cincinnati gave me just the cap, for a Bengals cap, and the Bengals just had, had the you know Bengals across their helmet, and I wore that thing to death, even though I was a Vikings fan. I, I, there's no way I was going to get the 10.99 or 13.99 Vikings letter jacket, but uh, but just having that that Bengals hat when when officially licensed gear was was uh, made you feel like you were. A member of, of that team because there weren't ubiquitous New uh, Era caps or or uh, you know NFL jerseys. It was a rare thing to see them. My mom had to kind of uh, cobble together a Alan Page jersey for me because they did they didn't make them or sell them. And, and you know there was you could have a ten Tarkenton or a forty four Chuck Foreman jersey. That was it in Minnesota. So Sears catalog was was and still is the embodiment of. You know, My Childhood Dreams, after the book came out, this was just last week, The guy knocked on our door, and I answered it, and he handed me the 1978 Sears catalog. He said, do you want this? I said, doing everything in my power. I said, doing everything in my power. He <laughs> said, are you now, an I angel? You and uh, he said, well, we just had a linear. He said, Honestly, I was going to throw it out. But he had read the book, and uh, he knew how much you know this meant to me. He was, he was a, an older, retired guy who, um, you know, this must have been something that, they had kept you know from from his own kids a childhood but uh yeah it's it still it still instantly transports me back it is the closest thing to a hot tub time machine that that you can imagine
0: my story is that that guy's an angel do you look like michael landon
1: because I, <laughs> Michael, ended in, in like a spandex bicycling gear. He bikes bicycle the way. <laughs> even Michael, better. Michael, and then, yeah, that, and then there was you know, I mean, forget about like the, you know the just the stuff that even then was hilarious. I mean, the, the fashions and things. You know, it's easy to say now every, every era looks ridiculous fashion wise, uh, from forty years removed. But even then, the you know the families holding like the hot cups of cocoa, all in matching flannel, uh, red, white, and blue nightgowns and things. We would howl at that because uh, I'm sure there were some families like that. Our family was, was not one of them.
0: What makes your short list of go-to 1970s toys?
1: Uh, well, um, you know, anything Nerf. The Nerf basketball was, you know, endless hours of entertainment and broken bedroom doors and and that. Then um, the Nintendo handheld football, again, not only occupied hours of our time, but you know, anybody who played it can relate to this. Just before you cross the goal line, um, I would hand it back to my brother, and that thinking that him not knowing that I wasn't turning the ball over and down, so I'd press the last yard to get the, 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 the touchdown, and it would send him into a rage, so much so that at one point, we had been sent to our rooms, our, the room that we shared. We were playing Mattel handheld football, and my brother thought he was going to beat me in, and I got a, like a seventy two yard scamper and pressed the button just before handing it to him and he he, he got up and he punched a hole in, in our bedroom wall. <laughs> and
0: Oh uh, boy. My
1: brother yeah, my, we had a pair of Faucet poster on that wall and um, we had a um, my brother was had been recruited by Montana State to play football. My oldest brother and we put that recruiting thing, Montana State welcomes Jim Russian, over the hole and it was only like five years later when my mom wanted to repaint that room that she took the posters down while we were at school and saw this hole in the wall and my brother had gone behind bloomington ice garden the skating rink stolen some drywall from a construction site they were doing construction on on the arena and patched up the holes but, he could, but of course he didn't paint over it or sand it or anything so my mom asked you know geez what happened here fellas and we made up some story but um so those two nerf football mattel handheld football and uh, you know there were a lot of just a lot of sports stuff. I I had a game uh, called Pro Draft. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Like you had like fifty NFL uh, pro football cards, trading cards on a plastic football, and you spin this thing and, and you play the game. You drafted players and uh, and uh, using the football cards as the players. Um, and uh, and speaking of football, Super Toe. You know, bash him on the head. The first the first real uh, national. Consciousness of, of head injuries in football. You'd bash this football player in the head, and his right leg would reflexively boot a field goal. And if you set the football down sideways, you know, it would go even farther. That was the sports hack for that. So all of these, I, it's occurring to me now, were sports related. Poor um,
0: Supertoe. He is in the uh, toy the old folks' home with advanced stage uh, CTE at this point, Yeah, I think. yeah.
1: I mean, it, it was um, endorsed by Alex Karras uh, if I remember correctly.
0: That is and, correct. Uh, I remember that.
1: And, um, you know, I, those, those things, they just, they, you would go to your room for, and you could emerge three hours later. And, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's, a it's a cliche to talk about, you know, these kids with their iPods and their, and their, uh, iPads today. But, um, I think that's, that, Still, that kind of stuff still exists, you know. I, I'm talking to you now. I, before you called, I, 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 um, my son was doing a, you know, a 587 piece Lego thing in his room. He's content to do that all day. Now our Legos, of course, were just a big bucket of bricks. <laughs> you had to make. It didn't come with a 45 page instruction manual, but, uh, but you know, a lot of that I think still exists. You know, I, yeah, I don't think every kid is on a device all day. Um, a lot of kids are still having this kind of play
0: you refer to baseball cards and football cards as the literature of your childhood in the book. What was it about that era and that time that made baseball cards? And, and, you know, maybe this is just me, but you go out today and you're trying to buy a pack of baseball cards and it's $3 for a pack that has four cards in it. I know. <laughs> and it's just not the same thing.
1: It's not. It's, um, and I understand, you know, the, the, uh the currency of baseball cards you know it just became so inflated and kind of uh, meaningless but uh, my son still gets a thrill out of you know opening and finding a Bryce Harper uh, or a Mookie Betts or something but he you know there's not this the, the rectangle of gum that was pressed from the same cardboard that the, that the baseball cards were pressed from there's not uh, you know you mentioned the price is ridiculous I mean you, you can spend four or five dollars for a pack of ten cards and um but the literature of it, you know, it wasn't just that the, There was so much to study of those cards, and and you've 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 done this yourself, I know, just from the Twitter feed of, where you would see, you know, guys wearing jerseys over windbreakers with them. The windbreakers buttoned to the top, and the collar collars coming over the the V necks of the pullover, and, um, and then or you'd see a guy, you know, uh, uh, catching, pretending to catch a fly ball, like. Uh, behind the home plate at a spring training field in some ridiculous pose that didn't make any sense in in any kind of a real-life baseball context. Then you flip over the card, on the back, everything you knew about these guys was on the back of that card. He's from Plantation, Florida. He's from Rancho Cucamonga, California. All these places that uh, usually warm-weather places that kind of captivated me. And and then those line-drawing cartoons of what they did in the off-season are the little fun fact... uh, Uh, You know, uh, Lou Brock owns a flower shop in the offseason. There's Lou in full uniform, sitting next to a a vase of flowers, because, of course, everybody who works in the offseason is working in their full baseball uniform.
0: Of course, Uh, everybody knew that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Larry was a decorated Vietnam veteran. There's Larry, you know, with his baseball uniform and and medals pinned to it, because he had been fighting in his his Kansas City Royals uniform and not, so... I mean, it was just so much going on on those cards, and then with the statistics that you um, you know you could look at all day. uh, It it was it really was um, you know a Russian novel in one set of baseball cards, and then next year there'd be a whole new set. So um, you know people talked about did you have the Stingray? No, I didn't. Did you put uh, baseball cards in the spokes of your bikes? Hell, no, I didn't do that. We would put playing cards in the spokes of our bikes. I would never. desecrate a baseball card in that way. Even if I had doubles, I had five Dick Rubins in the 1974 top set. I still have them in the basement. I wasn't going to uh, waste one of them uh, by putting the spokes on my bikes. I mean, baseball cards really were like a sacred thing for
0: me. I'm still deeply offended. Uh, the, it, the movie Mask, there's a scene in that movie where uh, Cher gets mad I and mean, she tears a 1974 Ron Say in half. And the, uh, that that for me was just. I, I, I'm
1: getting anxiety <laughs> listening to that right now. Yeah, it's
0: just just awful. It, it, you, you can't you can't do that.
1: You know, I wrote a column recently in SI about uh, balls and the you know uh, baseballs and footballs and just the, the, the greatest invention that man has ever come up with. And a guy wrote to me and said that uh, he was at a Dodger game. In, in the 70s, and, and they got good seats through some family connection, and Ron Say hit a home run. And the lady sitting next to them, to their astonishment, leapt out of her seat and said, "That away, son. Way to go, son. And they worked up the courage, like in any way, to say, Are you Ron Say's mom? And the lady said, Why, yes, I am. And Washington Trump came down from Washington State. Uh, Would you like a ball signed by Ron? would we and then they, they they gave they gave this lady their address and like a month later in the mail in southern california they had a, a ball signed by ron say and it just completely blew their minds and uh so the thought of tearing a Ron say baseball card in half even as a red stand growing up uh sickens me even now
0: it's not right it's like desecrating the flag or something you, you <laughs> exactly. just, you, i put it just it right on you know, that like level Rick,
1: Rick, Rick, like Rick Monday when he ran out to save the save the flag at Dodger Stadium, it's, it's, uh, he should have gone in and intervened in that <laughs> and, uh, and saved the Ron card. mask well. is a
0: better movie if that happens. Um, That's right. I want to say too, uh, you mentioned Booby Clark in in the book, yeah. who, who for me and for you and for a generation of boys was the first Booby that we ever got our hands on. <laughs> I
1: mean, I, I was six seven eight whatever whatever age was that. and I, I could conceive of how booby clark had had gotten that name or, or how it was allowed to be printed on a football card or or spoken over you know cbs on, on a, i mean it was it was crazy it was uh, and there, there were there were many other names that kind of uh, you know blew our minds as, as kids as well um on baseball cards and but, uh, Booby Clark, man, that was, that was, you know, uh, my, overhearing it now, my kids, my kids would be laughing, uh, and, um, yeah, so uh, names, the names of, of athletes, uh, Joe DeLama Lure, you know, I mean, I just remember when I learned how to pronounce that, I couldn't stop saying it. Um, uh, the twins had, had a guy, um, uh, 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 uh um, Ah, oh, name's escaping me right now. There was, there was Ed Ott, you know, who, the, the Pirates, Mel Ott's son, who had the shortest name in baseball. The twins had Joe Lis, J-O-E-L-I-S, and, uh, and I remember being bummed out that, you know, he, he had the second shortest name in baseball because it would have been cool as a Twins fan of Jolis if, if Ed Ott hadn't existed. I just was fascinated by players' names, um, different kind of games you could play with the players' names. And uh, you know, part of that was just communing with your baseball cards for hours on end.
0: You talk about your love of words and, and word play a, a bit in the book. Wasn't it like a number of years ago? Didn't you do a piece for SI where you had fun with anagrams?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, those started when I was a kid, uh, where, you know, I would see, you know, stingray, you know, when, when, when stingray, see a stingray go by, a kid in our neighborhood, had stingray. And I remember, I remember, uh, asking him, you know, if that was a stingray and as he peddled by me, he, he said, uh, no shed Sherlock. It was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. And, you know, as my armpits and ears were burning, um, It occurred to me at some point that, you know, Stingray was uh, an anagram of it's angry. And I would go around and try to, you know, rearrange words on street signs. And, and, you know, when you're a baby and you get the building blocks, the alphabet blocks, basically you're just arranging them in certain pleasing combinations of of letters, building stuff with words. And I think that was the earliest uh, inkling to me that that's what I wanted to do for a living was kind of rearrange words and, build words and play with language and and had no intention of making a living out of it but knock on wood so far i have
0: well this isn't going to make your resume but i can tell you that thanks to you and that si column i will forever associate brett Favre with beer fart tv
1: (sighs) if 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 i'm lucky enough to have an obituary i hope that makes the lead because uh, at least i've done
0: something for society. Steve, as we wrap up here, obviously it's a very personal story. It's also a story that goes much beyond being a personal story for the reader, who's going to be no doubt thinking of their own childhood memories. As you look back on it, with the finished product out there, and it's being very well received by critics, what insights, if any, did you gain into your own childhood into your parents, into your siblings, that may have been a sort of an unforeseen consequence of this undertaking?
1: Well, a couple of things. We touched on it earlier, the universality of of childhood. I was surprised and, and gratified to hear from people in Long Island, grew up in Southern California, grew up in Australia, who had similar experiences and uh, similar customs and uh, similar memories. So, so that was gratifying. The other thing that, that uh, I kind of learned after the fact was, um, uh, as a parent that these childhood memories were so vivid. You know, I started out the book by just jotting down like maybe the 25 most vivid memories I still have of childhood. And it makes you realize as a parent how important um, these little, you're not going to know what's going to be a big memory to a kid, you know. Um, And so it kind of puts you on a slightly better behavior, I think, because, uh, you know, so, so much, you know, yeah, I remember going to California for a family trip for a week. Anybody would remember that. But, uh, but why do I remember, um, you know, tearing out, um, you know, my brother's Levi's corduroy tag and him getting mad at me and then my parents getting mad at me for, for destroying the, the pants they had spent a lot of money to buy? All, all of this kind of just helps remind me as a parent that um, be careful what you do because your kids are watching and, and one of them might turn out to be a memoirist. <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter came home today, 12 years old, with a birthday card she saw in a store. And she said, I spent my own money to buy you this, Dad, and it said... Um and the front said, thanks for being a, a great bleep bleeping dad. With the asterisks and, and exclamation marks blocked out And he open up and says, see, I have learned something from you. So <laughs> I now realize she thinks of me as a, a profanity-laced father. I'd never known that before.
0: There are so many terrific stories in this, and, it, and I would encourage everybody to grab a copy of Stingray Afternoons. You can learn uh, the saga of Baby Tenderlove, your dad's uh, rumble with the Creek Freak, uh, I'll, I'll leave these uh, deliberately vague for the people who may be uh, on the fence thinking about this book, but believe me, everything that we've talked about and, and a heck of a lot more uh, in this book. The book is Stingray Afternoons, a memoir. He's Steve Russian. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I uh, did a tweet uh, a few moments before I called you about the Tidy Bowl Man, and I was ashamed... <laughs> I was ashamed, as Super Seventy Sports Guy, to realize that I had never made a tweet about the Tidy Ball Man until you <laughs> jogged my memory when I read the book.
1: Well, well, Ricky, thank you, and thank you for the Twitter feed. I feel I, I went into a little postpartum depression when when I finished writing the book. Cause I had so much fun reliving that time and re immersing myself in that time but your Twitter feed allows me to continue burying my head and continuing to live in the 1970s when 2017 becomes a little uh, less desirable.
0: We'll just leave out the uh, six or eight hours of boredom when you've been exiled outside (laughs) with nothing to do. I can hit the high points, so we can always make the 70s look a little better in retrospect.
1: Absolutely. Thank
0: you. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. My pleasure. What a treat that was. So glad to have Steve on the show today. Everyone who said, read his book, read his book, get him on the podcast. You guys were right. The book is a terrific read, especially if you are a 70s kid or even an 80s kid. And even if you weren't, Steve is such a skillful writer that he will take you back to my favorite decade and you'll feel like you were there even if you weren't. I'm going to be giving away a copy on Super 70 sports this week, so make sure that you put your name in the hat on Twitter. My guest next week is a World Golf Hall of Famer, a former U.S. Ryder Cup captain, and the 1988 and 1989 U.S. Open champion. In fact, he's the last man to successfully defend our national championship. Curtis Strange will join me on the podcast for a conversation about his career. We'll talk about Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus. We'll discuss the stars of today and the state of golf in 2017, so believe me you don't want to miss this one and I think I'm going to have to ask him about Jean Vandevelde the Frenchman remember him at the 1999 Open Championship made a triple bogey on the 72nd hole maybe the biggest choke that I've ever seen not only in golf but in any sport we'll have to get Curtis's take on that he was there in the booth that day until then I'm Ricky Cobb saying to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.